If, like me, you listen to the excellent Plain Crazy Down Under podcast from Australia, you'll no doubt have heard today's guest chatting to Stephen Grant on a couple of their episodes. His name is Owen Zupp, and a couple of years ago, Owen flew a single-engined uh, light aircraft around Australia. So when Owen contacted me offering to come on the podcast, I jumped at the opportunity. For his day job, Owen is a 737 pilot for a major Australian commercial airline. But in his spare time, he puts his passion for aviation to good use. Not only has Owen written a book on uh, World War II RAF pilot, but he's also flown a Jabiru around his homeland in order to raise money for an excellent cause, that being the Royal Flying Doctor Service. As these adventures uh, really spike my interest, it was primarily uh, this project that I wanted to talk to Owen about. First up, though, I asked Owen about his flying background and how he got into aviation in the first place. Uh, well, I was pretty much born into a flying family. Both my parents were in the Air Force and my... Um father flew around 200 missions during the Korean War so I grew up around aeroplanes and I went solo myself when I was 16 or 17 years of age and then I entered general aviation and flew regionally in, in all sorts of capacities as a flight instructor, a charter pilot, uh, a test officer for the Department of Aviation issuing licenses etc and after about six or seven years in general aviation I found my way into the airlines and I've been there ever since, although I've kept a very active uh, interest and participation in general aviation ever since. Okay, what do you fly at the moment? Uh, 737s, and I'd say I've been in the airlines now coming up 20 years, and I'd have to say probably 15 or so of those years have been on 737s. And that's domestic around Australia? Domestic predominantly. I, I've done a ferry flight back from Seattle, and we hop across to New Zealand, uh, and we used to go to Jakarta, but if there were any international operations, they were mainly regional, but predominantly domestic operations, that's right, yeah. Okay. Uh, where are you based, Owen? I'm based in Sydney, Sydney, Australia. Ah, so it's, heard of um, that, yeah. Pretty easy to find. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, a couple of years back, you decided to, uh, to do something, what I think is rather extraordinary, which is do a, a, a flight right around the, uh, the edge of Australia. That's right, yes. It's um, something I'd wanted to do for a long time and uh, the planets aligned as such that uh, I was able to, to make that a reality. It, it was a very, very enjoyable experience. Uh, I did it solo in a Jabiru aircraft over a period of around 18 days and um, it was something I'd wanted to do for a long time but I also wanted to do it just right so it took a little while to, um, to come together. Okay, and this was a couple of years ago? Yes, it was in 2010, uh, almost two years exactly, because I left, I think, uh, on about the 8th of May, so very close to two years ago now. And what particularly, apart from just wanting to do something extraordinary and a bit of an adventure, what made you do it at that particular time? It, it was probably, I guess you'd call it a multi-pronged attack. It was the centenary of powered flight in Australia in 2010, 100 years since uh, Harry Houdini had had a recognised powered flight in Australia. And the other aspect I really wanted to get across, hence the choice of the Jabiru, was the accessibility of aviation. I think the greater community often sees 737s or 747s and, and sees them as rather complicated, developed machines, whereas there is a, a lot of aviation that doesn't hit the headlines but is within the reach of pretty much the average person as long as they've got the, the ability to apply themselves and... Uh, a fair dose of common sense, and the Jabberoo got that message across. So I spoke to community groups and a number of school groups as I went around Australia, and that was one of the things I wanted to get across to, to school kids and the like, was that 
aviation was tangible. It wasn't just something that you had to sit on a perimeter fence and watch. It was something you could do yourself. Something you can get involved in, yeah. Absolutely, and, and the fact that you could cover such a distance around Australia in this little aeroplane, as, it, as it, they saw it, um, within a couple of weeks. And were you doing this for any particular charity at the same time? Yeah, at the same time I was motivated uh, to raise funds and awareness for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I think the awareness is probably as much a factor as, as the actual funds, fundraising, I should say, is because... Uh, we often think about uh, the Royal Flying Doctor, which has been around since 1928 in Australia, as being a, a, an outback community service. But it, it operates from major capital cities and right around the country. So it was to raise awareness of that and raise funds for the organisation. I mean, my knowledge of the uh, Flying Doctor service is very limited, but what, what sort of service do they offer nowadays? Is it still a little sort of single-engine aircraft with the Doctor on board, or is it a bigger and better operation nowadays? Well, they've actually gone to King Airs and now they're coming back to single engines in many of the regions in the form of the PC-12, a single engine turboprop. Uh, but they are still operating right around Australia and into the outback communities and their services are split really between emergency services where they, they do retrievals of, of critically injured patients but they also still do routine clinic runs where they take a doctor to remote communities on a, a re regular routine basis to townships where there isn't a doctor based. So you've got that mix of routine service and also the emergency service. You said you picked uh, the Jabiru to do this trip around Australia. What particularly drew you to the Jabiru? There are a few things. Firstly, it being an Australian-designed and built aeroplane, oh, being yeah. the centenary of flight in Australia, I thought there was a, a synergy there. Also, they're manufactured in Bundaberg, and it's not a commonly known fact, I suspect, but... Bert Hinkler, who was one of my boyhood heroes who flew solo from England to Australia, was born and bred in Bundaberg. So in a centenary of flight year, the fact that it had a really tangible link to Bert Hinkler and also the hometown of the Jabiru aircraft tended to um, once again put the planets in alignment and... Uh, it seemed to be the obvious choice. Okay. Uh, I've seen Jabiru's over here, but I think, I could be wrong, but I think they're mostly a kit built in, in the UK. Uh, was this a factory-built uh, operation? Yes, this was a factory-built aircraft, a J230D for Delta, and, uh, but there are kit aircraft as well. But um, you can get them factory-made or, or from a kit. And the 230 is the two-seater? Yes, its, it's airframe is actually the same as the 430, which is the four-seater but it is a two-seat aircraft and you've got substantial space behind you. So I used it effectively like a pickup truck on the way around Australia in that I had two seats, but I had a, a, an enormous amount of room behind those seats which allowed me to carry my, my gear, my camera gear, emergency equipment which varied from remote-end emergency equipment such as survival, rations, water, etc., to colder regions over water such as uh, life jackets and the like. So you had to cater for a, a fair range of uh, climates on the way around and all of that, including some spare parts, fit comfortably in the back of the aircraft. Okay, what sort of engine does that have? Does it have a Jabiru engine? Yes, a Jabiru uh, 3300, I should say, a six-cylinder engine. Wow. And they, they manufacture the engine at Bundaberg as well. Um, what sort of uh, cockpit does this have? Is it uh, all glass panel nowadays? You can pretty much get it analogue or glass. Mine was a blend of two. I had a, a primary flight display, which gave me 
depending which button I pushed, uh, flight information, airspeed information, or I could pull up engine monitoring information, or I could combine the two onto one display. Additionally, I had a, a moving map GPS fitted, and then I had digital radios, transponders, and the standard communications kit. But I also did have some basic analog instruments there as a standby scenario. So when you look at a cockpit of an aircraft like that, compared to something that I learnt on, it's a, a real um, step up. Yeah. Do you have one of those little sort of GPS tracking devices so people could follow you on the route? Yes, I did. And that was a um, spider track system, which was a, a satellite tracking system. You had an aerial that mounted to the dashboard and that transmitted my position every six minutes via satellite and it was linked to the website so people could follow me right the way around Australia. Uh, one of the interesting things also is that it's got a, a safety aspect that in the case of an emergency I can hit a button and that will update your position every 30 seconds until your ground speed falls below 30 knots and it'll automatically automatically send text messages to um, three, I think it was, pre-designated phone numbers outside of me making a mayday call also. So as well as the entertainment factor for everyone following the flight, there was a substantial um, benefit in uh, safety as well. You don't have flight following, do you, in, uh, in Australia like they do in the States? No, we used to have what they used to call full SAR, where you could have full um, flight following. You still have the option of submitting a plan to flight service and uh, nominating your flight route these days. But as far as it being a full reporting system as we used to have, which was parallel to the instrument flight rule system, uh, no, we don't. Okay. It, we, well, it's not really an option these days. Did you have to fit any like uh, extra fuel tanks in the, in the Jabiru, or was it okay as it was? Yeah, it was fine, really. That was one of the things I looked at when I was planning the route as well. Its uh, onboard tanks totaled 135 litres, and a rough fuel burn, you could say, 25 litres an hour. So that equates to around five and a bit hours without reserves and gave you about 600 nautical miles range in still air. So I didn't generally fly that long in one hit. Um, I, I aimed to fly about two and a half to three hours each time before refuelling. But I, did think, I do think there was a sector down the west coast of Australia where I went around four, four and a half hours. But um, generally I was in the seat around three, three or so hours and uh, time for a fuel stop and a, a chat with the local people again. What sort of fuel does it use? Does it have gas or mo gas? It can run on either, but I operated it on aviation fuel on this flight just uh, for simplicity's sake because... Uh, Mo gas, you'd have to carry the drums and then get transport into town to fill it up at the service yeah. station. It would work out um, to a degree cheaper, but for a convenience factor, and I was flying to quite a schedule, uh, I operated it on Avgas. And I've, I've spoken to people that have flown around the world or done long-distance flights, and it's usually the Avgas that trips them up, really, availability. But I presume in Australia you've got lots of little airstrips that still have uh, access to it readily? Yes, yes, you do. Um, and I can empathise with the people going around the world having that problem because it is something that I am entertaining doing, I won't say in the near future, but down the track and, and fuel is one of the things you have to really plan, particularly around uh, places like Indonesia and that where Avgas is very, very scarce. Yeah. So um, you, you're, you're better suited doing it in a turboprop, in all honesty, uh, to have access to fuel. But around Australia, it is a little on the decline, but I was quite comfortably able to plan an around Australia route via airfields equipped with um, Avgas facilities. 
And the Jabiru served you well on your trip round? No hiccups? Very, very well, very well. I said at the outset that there was um, two things I could not control, and that was the weather and aircraft reliability, because I did offer, um, operate as a VFR flight. And on both counts, I was blessed by a, a large high-pressure system sitting over central Australia, which fueled tremendous weather, and the aircraft did not miss a beat the whole flight. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, so what route did you take? Did you set up from your hometown or, or what? No, I launched out of Bundaberg uh, for a couple of reasons. Once again, that's where they manufacture the Jabiru, but they have the Hinkler Hall of Fame and the local community was very aviation supportive and orientated up there. So I, I departed and returned to Bundaberg in Queensland. And the route cut across from there to Longreach, which was the home, original home of Qantas, then across central Australia up to the top of Darwin and then around the Western Australian coast, across to um, Victoria on the southeastern corner, then across what we know as Bass Strait, which is a stretch of water, down to Tasmania, which is a state, an island state separate from the mainland, then back across the stretch of water into Victoria, up through my hometown here in uh, Sydney, and onwards, northwards, through Queensland back up to Bundaberg. So a circumnavigation. The only part it really clipped was far north Queensland, Cape York, and it was just a logistics issue of um, the timing of the flight that had me exclude that. I I don't think it was a to an overly popular decision, particularly my sister lives up that way, but uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a functional one at the time. So that total distance for all of that? From memory, it was around 7,500 nautical miles, which I think equates to about 13,000 kilometres, and that Genius. worked out at uh, 75 hours flight time. So Australia's a fair old place, isn't it, <laughs> he says? It, 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 it is. <laughs> uh, one of the funny things I recount is that my last flight um, prior to going on this, my last airliner flight, I took off from northern Queensland to head back home to Sydney, and I looked out the window at the top of climb at about 37,000 feet out towards central Australia in the distance as the sun was setting. And I just thought, boy, it's going to be a long way. <laughs> and, and sure enough, it was when I took off. But the time does pass relatively quickly between monitoring the aeroplane, navigating and just taking in that beautiful varying scenery. It, it, you could not say for a moment that it was boring, but it is a big country. You're so lucky, aren't you? You're so lucky. I know, I know, and I appreciate it every time the wheels leave the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been over to the UK and tried to fly here, but you know, as soon as you set off, you've got to talk to somebody because there's controlled airspace within a few miles. You know, so I envy yes, you. Yes, no, I've only operated uh, on heavy aircraft in, into um, Heathrow and back out, so I haven't had the joy of um, flying around the UK, although I must admit the scenery I would love to those green flowing pastures and that, I think in a tiger moth, with a Sidcot suit or, or appropriate warm clothing, it'd be wonderful. <laughs> Certainly green. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I always imagine Australia to be uh, you know, inhabited around the edge and in the middle I just imagine desert and the odd sheep. What, what, what's, what's in the yeah, middle? Yeah, you're, you're pretty accurate there. <laughs> the central more so than sheep because they need grass. You have uh, cattle generally inland. Yeah. Um, but it is a, a nation characterised by its coastal inhabitation. And the year I flew around it, we'd had, I won't say unseasonal rain, but not more than normal. And it was actually quite green. And the desert itself, if it gets water, you can get some beautiful flora, wonderful colours coming out. And I flew down through the Kimberley region of Western Australia, where I, I did operate for a year or so when I was a young pilot. And I'd never seen it as green and as coloured. And 
people often said to me which was my favourite place and I used to often say not so much an individual place but I took off out of Broome on the west coast just on dawn and the water there is a beautiful azure blue with white sands and then a Greek coastal strip and as I tracked south I flew into a desert region effectively known as the Pilbara where they do a lot of mining and that is bright red with with black ranges coming out of it and then within about an hour the green coast started to drift back towards me and all within about an hour and a half I had this wonderfully diverse range of of scenery and and I remember along that very point there was I saw a white paddock in amongst the fields and then it lifted up and moved and what it was was an entire flock of cockatoos which are a type of Australian native bird and virtually an acre of them moved and it looked just like the paddock of snow had lifted up and moved so those sorts of things that you can see within an hour hour and a half so diverse is just phenomenal so where are you landing then are you landing little uh, municipal airstrips or farm strips what Uh, a real mixture i landed uh landed at regional airports i landed at major airports i landed at uh bush airstrips at at outback stations um i landed at a military airbase where i had a wonderful meeting with the royal australian air force uh actually my father's old squadron was based there and they made a wonderful donation to the royal flying doctor so everything from landing on huge strips next to f-18 hornet aircraft to little outback strips that probably hadn't had an airplane in there for two to three months do you know you mentioned bert hinkler uh, I, I sort of read up a little bit about him and it always yes. amazes me what these guys used to do you know they, they would set off you know just flying from england to australia with i think hinkler did it in uh, uh, an avro avian or avian that's you correct and yep. you think you know you've got all this technology and these guys just set off there was no sort of visas required or airspace requirements just off they went and uh, you know they had no idea what the weather was going to do en route i presume <laughs> i know i i um I cringed a couple of times. The media said, "Oh, the new Hinkler." When I was flying around, <laughs> and and I said, "Listen, this this chap had his head stuck out in the breeze with a leather helmet yeah. and a, a page ripped out of a Times Atlas on his lap." Um, and he he honestly didn't know if there was going to be fuel where he landed. He tried to go often to places that were military establishments where he could scrounge a drum of fuel or something, but you're absolutely correct. They tried to time the weather as best they could, but there was no en route tracking there was no en route communications no en route weather forecasting it was as much seat of your pants as you can possibly imagine so what i did was really an an absolutely absolutely luxurious trip by by those standards i used to own a tiger moth but even in these days uh tiger moth flying you've still got a vhf radio in there and a transponder for controlled airspace so yes those pioneers they were I take my hat off to them every time I go flying because, they, they, as you say, they did it really tough. Did you get a feeling of being a bit of a pioneer as you were flying out over the uh, the back of beyond? N- not at all, no. I, I, I flew out back a lot when I was a, a young charter pilot. What I think I got more of a sense of when you are on some of these vast remote stretches on your own is, is a sense of solitude, and there's probably a little bit of a common ground with the pioneer aviators there of that solitude that loneliness factor but the fact was if my engine stopped i pushed a button and i triggered a satellite which triggered text messages i got a vhf broadcast out on 121.5 and there would have been about 50 people know that i was in trouble within about five minutes yeah um in those days when the chap didn't turn up at 
his destination about five or six days later, they started to worry. So I, I probably shared a degree of solitude, but that's where the comparison ends, I think. Yeah. Uh, I read on your blog um, about uh, various parts of your flight and uh, landing in the desert, I don't think, would would uh, give me any worries. But you mentioned a bit there where you flew over the sea and said it was shark infested. Now, that, that, I think I would, I would yeah, avoid like yeah. the plague. Yeah, people often used to think that the overwater stretch uh, between the Australian mainland and Tasmania, and it is a cold, fairly rugged stretch of water, but up around northwestern Australia, there's there's patches of water there, and I used to fly over there a lot as a, a young charter pilot. Um, the, if the crocs don't get you, the sharks probably will. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I look back on it because we used to have to have a radius of operation. We used to track via these little islands. But I tell you what, at maximum weight, you were stretching that it was going to be within gliding range. Oh, and now that I'm, I'm in my 40s with a family, I look down on that water totally differently to being 23 and absolutely fearless. Mm, exactly. <laughs> uh, do you have charts for all of the route across Australia or you just rely on your GPS? Yes, no, de definitely with all the charts. In fact, that's one thing with the planning. I, I love the convenience of GPS, but I'm a little bit old school. I, I, I triple certificated it basically. Basically, I, I planned it old school with a, a ruler and a, a, a pencil on charts. Then I put it into a flight plan. Then I put it into a computer flight planning system. And then I entered it into the GPS. So there were about three or four filters at which, if I put a wrong track or distance, it should pop up. Um, and there were a, a, quite an amount of times that I, I hung a baseball cap over the GPS and just map read for the fun of it. Because I, I fly in highly automated aeroplanes every day, so for me, part of the, the fun and the satisfaction is to map read and, and look at your drift off the sand dunes to work out your bearing and different things. Yeah. And, and that's still the challenge and the fun of it. Uh, but once again, I had the ability that the pioneers didn't, that I could lift that baseball cap off the GPS and have a sneaky look if I had to. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. But, um, but yeah, I did enjoy doing a lot of it old school just for the absolute fun of it. Yeah, I was, I was going back to Bert Hinkler, and I was reading about him. What a, what a bloke. I mean, I do love reading about I people know. like that. That's who you should write your I book know. about. <laughs> yeah, he, he was my um, actually my father's boyhood hero. And, yeah. and out here, uh, Charles Kingsford Smith is a, a, a national icon. Everyone knows about Kingsford Smith because he crossed the Pacific. But a, a big factor, and this isn't said uh, detrimentally, but one of the reasons Smith is so widely known is he was clever in the use of publicity. Um, whereas Hinkler tended to just turn up places, oh, yes, I've arrived, and, yeah. and shunned publicity. Uh, but when you consider what he did and the fact he did it all solo, mm. uh, absolutely remarkable. And my father admired him greatly as a boy, had very similar upbringings. My father was of a German background, as was Hinkler. They both grew up in very similar parts of Queensland, Australia. And when my father was about five to ten years of age, Hinkler landed on his, his England to Australia flight. So... There was a personal significance there when I um, chose Bundaberg as well. It was yeah. a, a fantastic uh, aspect to, to the trip as well. But, yeah, you, you're dead right. He's absolutely remarkable man. Just never publicised himself enough. <laughs> I, know, I, I just look back to the day when I used to watch um, those magnificent men in their flying machines, you know, which is it's supposed to be a comedy. I look at that and I think, oh, what a time to live. <laughs> I know. Even even I look at my father's logbook. He started on the Tiger Moth in around you know the late forties, 
Uh, he'd served in, in the Army in World War Two. Then he, he learnt to fly. After that, they got remustered in the Air Force as a pilot. But I, he flew 102 types. Wow. And he flew... He flew for Qantas for about five years. He flew for a regional airline for about five years. He flew DC-3s making rain for the, the local science bureau. He towed targets civilly in Mustangs. And in the Air Force, he flew everything from Tiger Moss to the first generation of jets in combat. And I look at that, and the, the books that he had to read were 20 pages thick. And read that. That's how you start the engine. Off you go. And his, his, first, his first jet flight was in a vampire. Wow. And uh, it was his first jet, first nose wheel, first pressurised, and it was solo because they didn't have any two-seat trunks <laughs> they, and, and no ejection seat. So if you had to get out, you had to full back trim, roll inverted, jettison the canopy and let your harness off and hope the tail boom didn't hit you. Uh, but that, that, that was solo. That was yeah. his first jet was solo. And he, he came off the Mustang. He said, I couldn't set an attitude because I was used to this huge nose in front of me and in the... Um, uh, vampire it was like flying a, a forward control vehicle there was nothing in front of him yeah and he said i had to look at the instruments i'd never done that in the mustang i just used to look along the nose and shoot mm -hmm. so um yeah the, there was a real golden age there really from you know probably pre-world war one right through to i'd say around 90 the 1950s it's an hour era now it's all about wide-bodied turbofan efficiency so um it, it's not so dramatic romantic glamorous even it, it's just cold hard efficiency but we still have the opportunity to go and do little flights like around australia and that and, and get the fun out of it and you mentioned that you have possibly thought about doing around the world is that a reasonably firm idea or what yeah it, it is a firm idea in fact my wife was interviewed once when i was flying around australia and they said did he just sit up one morning and say i'm going to fly around australia and she said no actually he said he's going to fly around the world and i said to him why don't you start with australia mm -hmm. um so it is a long-term goal i think i'll probably do a regional flight over water somewhere in the southern hemisphere once again everything i, I try to just push my boundaries a little more and learn a little more so that i'm better prepared for the next uh project so probably in the next few years yes i'll do a, a one beyond the Australian borders, and then ultimately, for me, yes, and around the world. But there's a lot of planning in the around the world, not just in terms of the um, airways and the fueling depots, but I, I want it to bear some significance for me too. There's a lot of places around the world that I want to visit in a light aircraft, um, just for my own personal satisfaction and joy. So it'll it'll be a number of years in the making, but but there's no rush, no rush. Okay. I'm enjoying it. But I think I think the advertisement says it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. Great, great. Now, in addition to your flying, you, uh, you're quite active uh, as an author, aren't you? Yes. Um, I fell into writing to some degree. I've always enjoyed it, but I worked for an airline that collapsed and I found myself in the unemployment lines. And the common theme from uh, the unemployment bureaus was that I was highly skilled but totally unemployable. So uh, when I found another airline job, I, I thought I never want to be in that boat again. So I started writing and I've ended up writing for a number of aviation magazines around the world and uh, wrote my first book which came out in 2007 which was uh, down to earth based on the life of a, a Scottish fighter pilot in the RAF and uh, I'm just finishing off my next book now which uh, all being well I reckon I should have the first draft done within the next week or two so it, it's a really creative passion that I enjoy and on the magazine side, I also get the, the chance to test fly new aircraft when they arrive in the country and write 
reviews on those aeroplanes. So that gives me a, a great diversity of aeroplanes to fly from business jets to to Jabiru's. So I really enjoy that. I get to see a lot of different types of aeroplanes. Brilliant. Sounds like a great job you've got there. Oh, look, I, as I said, I'm thankful every time the wheels leave the ground. I'm thankful when they touch down again too, but uh, uh, I, I, I'm definitely appreciative of, of the hand I've been dealt. And Owen, where can people find out more about you if they want to have a look online? Yes, probably the best place is the blog you alluded to, Owen, at www.owensup.com. That's all one word. And uh, the aviation blog there, which I update most days with stories from flight training to airline work to um, uh, buying an aeroplane. Pretty much anything anyone emails me about that they're interested in hearing about aviation, I try and uh, put some words together on that topic. I've been fortunate enough to have a fairly diverse career and I had a, a wonderful mentor that I could just go and ask questions all the time. So I've decided to try and put a bit of that information back out there for, for other people to, to have a read and use as they see fit. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you very much, Owen. No worries at all, Steve. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Sure. Great. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about Owen's adventure or his uh, other aviation-related activities, you can find a link to his website, on the Flying Podcast website at the address, which I'm sure you know, www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. I'm sure we'll hear from Owen again. Seems like he's got uh, plenty more adventures planned, so hopefully we can look forward to uh, more podcasts uh, from down under. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to write in with comments and suggestions for podcast topics. There's been some great ones. Uh, As always, any feedback is much appreciated. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter or Facebook. Well, that's it for episode 55, as usual. Thanks for listening, and I shall speak to you again soon.